Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sin, might live for righteousness. He who believes in the Son has everlasting life, but he who does not believe in the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say unto you, he who believes in me has everlasting life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. Before we begin our study of God's Word this morning, let's take some time to go to the Lord in prayer and ask his guidance and direction on our study of his Word today. Let's pray. Father, you gave us your word in order to communicate to us who you are, in order for us to understand who we are as human beings and the original purpose that you had in creating the human race to rule and reign over the planet, the problem that came into history because of Adam's original sin, the spiritual death that immediately came as a result of that and the consequences of that spiritual death which reverberated throughout all of creation. Father, the message of Scripture isn't one of condemnation, it is one of hope, it is one of life, that it is Jesus Christ who came to give life. He came to give life by giving his life on the cross as a substitute for us, that by paying our penalty on the cross, we might have eternal life simply by believing in him, trusting in him. The message of the Bible it is a message of life. It is a message of hope. It is a message of restoration to our original uh, fellowship, our original position as your creatures restored in fullness of life with a divine purpose. Now, Father, as we study your word today, we pray that you will make clear to us the uh, issues that we study, the doctrines we study, and their application in our lives through God the Holy Spirit, that we might be reminded that each day we have choices to make and that day in and day out we make choices related to life or death. And the real issues for us as believers is to consistently choose life. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to Second Kings chapter 8. Second Kings chapter 8. And today we'll be looking at verses 1 through 6. Now this is the 12th incident that we have studied since the beginning of Elisha's ministry back in chapter uh, back in chapter 2 these miracles that we have been studying these wonders that have occurred in the life of Elisha are primarily oriented towards teaching something to the Israelites they are visual aids to remind them of God's grace, to remind them that God is constantly reaching out to them uh, in grace to provide blessing for them and to provide real life for them. 
It is at a time, uh, one of the darkest periods in the northern kingdom of Israel, when Israel has been under the uh, leadership and the tyranny of the Omri dynasty. Omri was the first of that dynasty. He was a general in the northern kingdom who uh, usurped power, and then he worked out this uh, tremendous uh, peace negotiation with the king of Phoenicia, and he married off his son Ahab uh, to the daughter of the king of Phoenicia, uh, Jezebel. And with Jezebel came a host of unintended consequences as she brought the worship of Baal into the uh, northern kingdom. Now, the worship of Baal wasn't unique. Uh, that This kind of worship wasn't unique to the Canaanites, the Phoenicians at this time. It had a horrible, perverted history, and it wove together a lot of different aspects that just appeal to the most base instincts of a people's sin nature. It offered uh, wealth. It offered prosperity. It offered uh, success. And it offered as a means of achieving this um, all sorts of sexual perversions that would take place in these worship centers and groves, etc., that occur that were uh, placed in various uh, high places around uh, the land, where people would go to worship by having uh, sexual encounters with the temple prostitutes, and so it was offering everything that it could to appeal to the most uh, base lusts of the sin nature. And yet in its offer of, of, of life, its offer of success, it was totally counterfeit. And what came in reality was death and destruction. And that death that came was a result of the judgment of God. The judgment of God came as part of God's grace, as we've seen in the last couple of lessons, that God's grace isn't just focused on providing the blessing, but God's grace also includes discipline and punishment for his people in order to bring them back into a position of obedience where God can restore that blessing to them. And this theme of restoration is one that we've seen a few times in these episodes, a restoration of life, emphasizing that that Yahweh, the covenant God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, is the real God of life. He's the real God who provides blessing and happiness and success in life, and that that can only come by having a consistent walk or relationship with God. And when Israel in the north had succumbed to idolatry under the influence of Jeroboam I, and then that had intensified down through the uh, successive uh, kings, God had uh, followed one disciplinary act with another. They had an instability, because political instability, because of their disobedience to God, and one dynasty would be replaced through a, another dynasty until finally God uh, gave them over to this uh, horrific dynasty of Omri, uh, Omri, Ahab, and Jezebel, and then uh, the two sons of Ahab and uh, Jezebel, Ahaziah, and Jehoram. Jehoram is the king at the time uh, we're studying in Second Kings chapter 8. He's been the king since chapter 2 
And it's during this time that God is bringing tremendous discipline into the nation according to exactly what he had laid out in the Mosaic Law in the five stages, five successive and increasingly more intensive stages of of divine discipline. And yet, even in the midst of this culture of death that existed in the northern kingdom, God is reaching out again and again and again to give life. And each of these miracles somehow focuses on God's gift of life, even though the northern kingdom is mired in negative volition. They've rejected him again and again. They continue to turn to uh, false solutions to all of their problems, and one problem just compounds upon another. And so what we see as the background to all of these episodes is this contrast between the culture of death offered by the false systems of Baalism, which in our world today is offered by the false systems of philosophy that leave God out, many different religious systems that leave the God of the Bible out, and what we always see is, often see, is what we see in the ancient world in the ninth century B.C. is that often the greatest amount of perversity and sin is wrapped in a mantle. It's wrapped in a veneer of religiosity. And that's what happens with Baalism, merging all of these uh, various uh, practices, appealing to the lust of the sin nature, and then wrapping it all up in a veneer of religion. But no matter how, how pleasant, how much fun, how much excitement there was in following the worship patterns and the fertility uh, rites of Baalism, ultimately it never satisfied the real hunger, the real desires of the human soul, because God has placed in every human being that desire to have a relationship with the Creator, and nothing can take its place and nothing can truly satisfy uh, that desire. There may be a temporary satisfaction for a while, but the end result of the pursuit of anything other than a relationship with the God of the Bible is always death. Proverbs 14.12 says, There is a way that seems right to a man, but the end is death. And that's the way it always is in reality. Living in God's world, whenever we violate God's, God's ways, whenever we ignore the Scripture, it always ends up with an emptiness of soul, a uh, barrenness in our life that where there is no real joy or happiness. Proverbs 12.28 says that in the way of righteousness there is life, but and in its pathway there is no death. And so it's only when we pursue our relationship with God that we really experience the fullness of life that God has provided for us and God has intended for us. This is what Moses was focusing on when he was giving his final uh, message to the Israelites before he went uh, to be with the Lord. When he addressed them in Deuteronomy chapter 30, he focused it all in one uh, concise verse. In verse 19, he says, I call upon heaven and earth as witnesses today against you that I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, 
choose life that both you and your descendants may live. And what we see in these chapters we've studied in in, in uh, Second Kings from chapter 2 through chapter 8 is the offer of life again and again and again. God is constantly pursuing even the rebellious northern kingdom of Israel, no matter how perverse they are, no matter how horrible they've been, no matter how much uh, sin that has dominated their thinking, God continues to pursue them, and the same is true for us. Until we're dead, there is always hope. As long as we're alive, there is always that opportunity to turn back to God, to respond to his grace, and to be either restored to real life, which comes only by faith alone in Christ alone, or if you're a believer, to be restored to fellowship so that we can experience the fullness of life that God has provided for us. So we see this pattern again and again in Scripture that God never just turns his back on his people. He constantly pursues them in grace. And so he is pursuing the northern kingdom via his prophet Elisha. And through these visual aids of these miracles, he is teaching and reminding the people in the northern kingdom of his grace and reminding them that there is an opportunity for them to turn back to him. Now, one of the most interesting and somewhat uh, abbreviated instances that we have seen, because we just don't, we don't even know the lady's name. She's just the Shunammite woman. Is the episode that involved this woman who lived in the village of Shunem, which was located in the uh, valley of Jezreel, in the northern part of, of Israel, and her ministry to Elisha. And we saw the first part of of the uh, her involvement back in Second Kings chapter four verses eight and following, and in Second Kings eight we see the uh, conclusion of the story, the rest of the story that wasn't even hinted at uh, previously. But she becomes a picture for the northern kingdom, not only of life that God is the only one who can give life; He's the God who gives life and takes life away and restores life but he is the God who gives a fullness of blessing as well. In the previous study in 2 Kings chapter 4, we saw that she's a great woman. She's not identified by a name. She's just a, uh, a woman in Shunem, the Shunammite woman. She is a wealthy woman. She's from the aristocracy in the northern kingdom. Uh, she's a woman of means. She's a woman uh, who has a family. She's married. There's not much said about her husband. It seems that she has a greater spiritual desire than he does. But she shows that she honors his leadership because when she wants to make certain decisions, she always seeks him out first and asks him before going ahead with her own plans. And so when we're introduced to her in 2 Kings 4.8, we learn that she lives uh, with her husband in the village of Shunem and that she's very interested in spiritual things. She's interested in the prophet Elisha, and she is uh, sensitive to his physical needs and his logistical requirements. And so she recognizes that as he's traveling uh, on his uh, itinerant route through the northern kingdom of Israel, that he has uh, no place to really stay as he's traveling. And so she approaches her husband with a, uh, the desire to build a guest room on the roof of the house, which was common in the ancient world. That's where the uh, guest room would be built. It would be cooler uh, in the heat up on uh, on the roof. 
And so she approached him with a desire to build a guest room on the roof and to furnish it as a place where Elisha could stay. Whenever he came through the area, he would have a place to sleep, a place to rest, a place to eat, a place where he could uh, have a base of operations and, and ministry in the area. And so she approached her husband, and he consented, and they constructed a guest room for the prophet. And so this demonstrated her grace orientation. There was no uh, initiative taken by Elisha to approach her to do this. This just came out of her own soul. It came out of her own spiritual life as she was sensitive to the realities of the need of, of the prophet. And so she was willing to, to give of what she had in order to supply this particular need. Now, that is our first example of grace orientation in the episode. And then the next example comes from Elisha himself because he then in return uh, seeks some information about her. It's not a, uh, a, pro, uh, a tit-for-tat uh, exchange. He just has been provided for her, so he is going to uh, do something uh, for her. And so he, after inquiring about her and learning that she was without a child and having a son in the ancient world was very important because children would then be the source of uh, so- social security. They would provide for the parents when they uh, became too old to work and to take care of themselves, and so this was very important to have children, to have a family. And so Elisha sent a message to her that within a year she would conceive and give birth to a son. And that happened, and some time went by. We don't know how much, but within the basic chronology of Second Kings 2 through 8 and the time of Elisha's ministry and the reign of Jehoram, we know that this must have only been a few years. Jehoram only reigns for uh, 11 years. Uh, by the way, we would count a reign. So you will get into the chronology issues some uh, next time. And during seven of those years, there is a famine. So it seems like when this uh, child is only uh, two or three years of age, he goes out with his father and he has some sort of heat stroke or cerebral hemorrhage or something of that nature, and he dies. And the woman, rather than falling to pieces and uh, panicking, uh, immediately uh, uh, keeps her composure, packs her bag to head uh, on about a 25, 30-mile trip to Mount Carmel, which is where Elisha was at the time. And, and she's going to Elisha because she knows that he is the one who graciously uh, gave her this son, and so he can be the solution to this problem because he is the representative of God. She is actually looking to God as a solution to her problem. So we studied that, and she went to Elisha. Elisha first sent his servant to uh, lay a staff upon the child, and that didn't work. And when Elisha came, he laid down upon the child. And after uh, doing that seven times and praying and breathing into the child, the child is brought back to life. And so it shows that God is the God who gives life with the birth. God is the God who takes life with his death. And God is the God who restores life. It is a picture of what is stated by Job in Job 121, after he has lost his, uh, lost all of his possessions, lost his uh, cattle, his sheep, lost his children. Everything's been taken away from him, 
It is Job that said, The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. See, Job had that same grace orientation, recognizing that everything that we have comes from the God, whether it is little or whether it is much. The fact that he gives it to us to begin with is just grace that we have anything, that we even have life. So often we put our focus on what we don't have or what we could have or what somebody else has and why the Lord hasn't given us that rather than focusing on the fact that, that we're just so thankful that we have what we have because God may not have chosen to even give us that. So it is the Lord who gives and the Lord who takes away. And so we should just relax in that and be thankful for what the Lord has given us. And so Job demonstrated that grace orientation in his expression of gratitude, even at the time of, that he lost everything. And so that is depicted in the life of the uh, Shunammite woman. Well, the story stopped there with the uh, bringing the child back to life, his, his uh, resuscitation. And now in chapter 8, we learn the second chapter, the second event that takes place here in 2 Kings 8.1. Some time has gone uh, uh, gone by. This isn't too long after that episode, actually. And what happens in verse 1 is that there is a uh, sort of a flashback. The New King James translates it, Then Elisha spoke to the woman, but it shouldn't be translated that way. It should be, it's a disjunctive Vav uh, in the Hebrew, which means that your conjunction and is connected to a noun rather than a verb. Typically, it's connected to a verb, and that indicates a break in the action and a shift to something else. It is not indicating a chronological connection between the events of chapter 7 and those of chapter 8, other than when we get to the end of these verses, uh, when we get down to verses... Um, uh, three, four, five, and six. Then we're in the chronological framework of what follows chapter seven. But verses one, two, and three are really, are one and two especially, are just talking about what had happened previously. And so we would translate this instead of now, we would say, uh, uh, or instead of then, we would say, now Elisha, and we would take the uh, perfect tense of the verb there for spoke in the, in the Hebrew as a, as a true perfect and translate that. Now, Elisha had spoken to the woman. It is an event that had occurred prior to the famine that has been the focal point of the last couple of chapters. So uh, this would go back to the time not long after the restoration of her son to life. And so we would translate that. Now, Elisha had spoken to the woman whose son he had uh, restored to life, saying, Now it happened as he was telling the king how he had, um, or excuse me, I'm just reading ahead there, verse 2. So the woman arose and did according to the saying of the man of God. She went with her household and dwelt in the land of the Philistines for, for some years. Now when we look at verse um, verse 1 and 5, we see the real focus of this chapter. And that's in the phrase, restored to life. Here I have it highlighted. Four times we have this same verb in the Hebrew repeated in these six verses. It is the verb chaya, which means 
uh, to make alive. And in the hifil stem of the Hebrew, which is the causative stem, it has the idea to cause, to make alive, or to restore to life. So this tells us that the theme, the major teaching point, the doctrine, if you will, of these six verses has to do with the restoration to life. And once again, this focus on life versus the culture of death that dominated uh, in the culture of the northern kingdom. So this woman is going to uh, be the recipient of God's grace in another element related to this idea of restoration. Now, though we have the English word restoration here in verses 1 and 5, uh, that word is not in the original. It's simply the verb chayah, which means to be, uh, to make alive, literally. So it would be read, Elisha spoke to the woman whose son he had brought back to life. And, and then verse 5, now it happened as he was telling the king how he had brought back to life the dead. That's the correct order of that uh, translation. And then that there was the woman whose son he had brought back to life. So restored is not in the, uh, in the original. Now this is also important because when we see the king as a major player in this episode, the king had used the same word back in chapter 5 when Naaman, the Syrian general, the commander-in-chief of the Syrian army, had been sent by Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, to the northern kingdom of Israel. He had heard about this prophet who could heal him of his leprosy. He sent Naaman and his entourage to Samaria to ask Jehoram to heal him. And it happened when the king of Israel read the letter that he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and make alive that this man sends a man to me to heal him of his leprosy? The reason I point this out is it shows that the issue is clearly understood in the text that we're contrasting death and life and that God is showing that he is the only one who can give real life, and the false gods, the false idols of their time or our time simply cannot provide that. And so in 2 Kings 8.1, we're told that God demonstrates his grace again to the Shunammite woman. She is going to be a visual aid, a picture of grace restoration, even in the midst of this time of famine, this time of divine discipline. So Elisha goes to the woman uh, whose son he had restored to life, and he says, Arise and go, you and your household, and stay wherever you can, for Yahweh has called for a famine. See, this takes us back again to the seven cycle, I mean the five cycles of discipline, Leviticus 26. The Lord has called for a famine, and furthermore, it will come upon the land for seven years. Now, that's interesting because that's the cycle of the sabbatical year. Every seventh year, there was to be that sabbatical year where you would take off and not work. And so God is working through this same uh, system of seven-year cycles. We're told that the woman responded. Part of her grace orientation is orientation to authority. That's part of all grace orientation. Remember, to be grace-oriented, we have to understand true humility. 
You cannot respond to God's grace if you're arrogant and proud. You have to be willing to be humble and to humble yourselves under God, which means we have to be willing to submit to his authority rather than doing it our own way. And that's what Baalism had really emphasized was the whole northern culture was doing it their way. They were mired in rebellion against God and asserting their independence from God and worshiping the God that they wanted uh, They wanted to worship. But here we see that the Shunammite woman is a picture of humility. She responds to the authority of the prophet, and she immediately does according to what the man of God says, not because of him, but because she knows that his message comes from God. And so she is going to depart with her household and her husband and dwell in the land of the Philistines, for seven years. So she is going to leave. Now, it may appear to many of us that, well, she gets, she gets off pretty easily here. She doesn't have to go through the famine. Now, we need to remember that for someone to move at that time was not necessarily easy. She has to go into a foreign area. She's going to be in the area of the uh, Philistines, which is down to the uh, southwest of Israel. It's the area that is the modern uh, Gaza Strip. Uh, she's going down there. It's under the control of the Philistines, and she has to continue to live in a pagan environment, yet without her possessions, without her wealth uh, there at all. But God is going to uh, provide for her, and she won't be affected by the famine that is going to affect the rest of the nation. So she is a beneficiary of God's grace. Now, there were many other believers in the northern kingdom. We know that there were at least 7,000 who had not bowed the knee to Baal, and they did not get to avoid the famine. See, sometimes we think if God's grace is really there, I will get to avoid the tough times. But that's not necessarily true. The rest of the believers in the northern kingdom had to go through the famine, but God had a plan for her that was distinct from the others because he wanted to use her as a teaching aid about his grace. And so she had a, an, had another plan, and that meant that she got to avoid uh, the famine. But life was still difficult for her because she had to leave uh, everything behind, her friends, her possessions, her home. And in fact, during that time, she lost everything. It was confiscated by the government. So she lost her home, she lost her land, she lost all of her, all of her possessions. But she was grace-oriented, and that grace-orientation was also linked to a doctrinal orientation. She understood the plan and the purposes of God, because she had been, had that revealed to her by the man of God. Now, we don't have a prophet who comes and appears at our front door and tells us, well, this is what God wants you to do. We have the word of God instead, the 66 books of the canon, 
And God has spoken to us, as the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 1.1, and that 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 revelation is complete. And so we are to go to the Word of God to seek wisdom in how to deal with circumstances in our own lives. We apply the same principle she, she did. We're oriented to grace. We're oriented to God's authority. We're oriented to God's Word. And so she left, and during those seven years, God provided for her, and she was, as it were, in exile, an expatriate from her home in the northern kingdom of Israel. And then the famine ended. We saw the ending of that in chapter 7 last time, and it is time for her to return to her home. And so in verse uh, 3, we read that after the seven years, Came to pass, came to pass at the end of seven years that the woman returned from the land of the Philistines and she went to make an appeal to the king for her house and for her land. Now, the word return there is simply your normal word for coming back from a place where you had been before. It is the Hebrew word shuv, but that word has other connotations. And in the structure of this particular episode, with the emphasis on her return and on the restoration of her property, there is, we can't help but think about how this word is used in Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy, God had warned the Israelites through Moses that there would come a time when they would be so negative to him, that they would reject him completely, and God would have to discipline them to the point of completely removing them from the land that God had promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that God would take them from the land and would scatter them throughout all the nations, throughout all the world, but there would come a time eventually, which has not yet happened in human history, when they would shuv when they would turn back to the Lord, and at that time God would then restore them to the land of Israel and would fully bless them in terms of all of the covenant promises that he had given to Abraham, to Moses, to David, and uh, to the, in the new covenant. And so when we read this word, the woman returned from the land of the Philistines, it shows us that there is some imagery going on here that is designed to remind the Israelites of this promise that God had made in the past that if they would return to him, God would bless them. So there is this turning, this return of the woman to the land, which is always seen as the place of blessing. She returns from the land of the Philistines, and she's going to make an appeal to the king for her house and for her land because this land has been confiscated and now is owned um, by the state, and it is part of their uh, the king's property. Now, while this is taking place, God is working on the heart of the king. At the same time that the woman has returned uh, to uh, Samaria, the king is showing a little curiosity about the ministry of Elisha. This comes not long after the events of chapter 7. We see a picture of Jehoram here that is unlike any picture we see of any of the Amrit kings, any of the kings in the northern kingdom. He seems uh, relaxed. He seems to have a certain level of uh, friendship and rapport with Gehazi, the servant 
of the prophet. And when we first read this in verse 4, that the king talked with uh, Gehazi, uh, the servant of the man of God, talked with Gehazi, the servant of the man of God, saying, uh, tell me, please, all the things Elisha has done. What's going on here? It's, is Jehoram becoming positive? Is he really interested in spiritual things? Or is there something else uh, happening? In Proverbs 21.1, we're told that the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. Like the rivers of water, he turns it wherever he wishes. We always need to remember that, that the Lord Jesus Christ controls history, and no matter who gets elected to public office or what their agenda might be, Ultimately, it is God who controls history and who is the final final authority. And so even though we have this wicked king, and trust me, he is not positive. He, just like many unbelievers, showing a certain level of curiosity about the things of God, but he's not really uh, interested. I've had experience over the years with many people like this. They always they ask all kinds of questions. They want to know all about what you believe, but they're not interested at all. I know people who have been witness to lit, literally hundreds of times, but they have never responded to the gospel, and they really don't show any interest in it, but they like to talk about it for the intellectual stimulation. And so that seems to be what is going on here because the... Uh, the king has been been uh, really emotionally impacted by what happened in the last chapter as they were going through the famine and the people were starving and he heard the case of the one woman whose child had been killed and boiled and eaten and so it, it has gotten his attention and when this there's this miraculous turnaround that occurred. Uh, in chapter 7, and the Syrian army fled, the Syrian army that had been um, that had been attacking them and had them under siege when they fled, and now the famine has been reversed according to the word of Elisha. He's showing some curiosity, so he has asked Gehazi for some information. But God is the one who's behind all of this because God is the one who's preparing the king's heart for the encounter with the Shunammite woman that is going to come up in verse uh, 6. So the, um, while the king is asking Gehazi, we go on to read, Now it happened as he was telling the king how he had restored the dead to life, that there was a woman whose son he had restored to life, appealing to the king for her house and for her land. And Gehazi said, My lord, O king, that is the woman. This is her Son, whom Elisha restored to life. And so it is not coincidence. There is no coincidence in the plan of God. He set the whole thing up so that uh, Jehoram would be asking those questions and getting prepared for this at that particular moment, which made him much more responsive to her request. And so as he hears this request, uh, that the woman has to have her land restored to her, he is responsive. Verse 6, we read, Verse 6, we read, And when the king asked the woman, she told him, So the king appointed a certain officer for her, saying, Restore all that were, was hers, and all the, all the proceeds of the field from the day that she left the land until now. This is like what would occur during the year of Jubilee. 
in the Jewish calendar, there was the sabbatical year, which occurred every seventh year, so that the 49th year in a cycle would be a sabbatical year, and then the next year, the 50th year, would be a second sabbatical year. But in the year of Jubilee, all debts were forgiven, uh, all uh, those who had become indentured servants or slaves would be given their freedom. Those who had sold property from their tribal inheritance would have that restored to them. So it is a time of restoration. So this is a picture of that same kind of thing that would happen during a year of Jubilee. And the focus is on that word uh, restoration. And so she is restored everything that she lost plus all of the proceeds from the sale of all of the uh, agriculture during this time. Now, that probably was not a tremendous amount because you remember it was a time of famine, but God is restoring to her everything that had been taken from her. So what's the lesson? The lesson is that Israel is in the same kind of position as a nation. Spiritually, they have rejected God. Spiritually, they have been in rebellion against God uh, for the last 40 or 50 years. And during this time, God has been bringing one level of discipline after another against them. But at the same time, he has been offering them the opportunity to return to him. And this is the principle of grace preceding judgment. What we'll see next time is when we get into the seventh verse and on into the ninth and tenth chapters, that we will see that the promised judgment that God is going to bring against the house of Omri finally will occur. But this is the last offer of grace, the last reminder that God can bring them back. He is holding out hope that even if they have been in all of this rebellion for so long, if they would turn back to God, God would restore to them all that they had lost and all that had been taken from them. But they refused to do it. Like so many, their hearts become increasingly hardened. The more God is gracious to them, the more they resist it, the more hardened their hearts become, and the more resistant they are, and the more they set themselves in concrete so that no matter how much God offers, they are not going to respond. This is just a a, a foreshadowing of the kind of resistance that is seen among those who are called earth dwellers uh, during the tribulation period, that no matter how much God offers, they are steadfast in their rejection and resistance of God. And so the lesson, the picture here in chapter 8 is a lesson of restoration, the lesson of God's grace that God will provide for those who have been uh, those who have lost, and we are reminded that there are various ways in which God provides that same restoration for us. It is the offer of life, and we see this emphasized in the teaching of our Lord in the Gospel of John. Just a couple of verses to uh, emphasize. First of all, in John eight twelve, Jesus was speaking to the uh, Pharisees, and he said, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. See, God is constantly offering life. Life is a major theme in the Gospel of John. Jesus came to give life, and that life is spiritual life, eternal life, and that comes by putting our faith and trust 
in Jesus Christ alone. He is the only one who can give life. The contrast is death and darkness. In John 11:25, Jesus said to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Just as God allowed Elisha to restore the life of the Shunammite woman's son, this is a foreshadowing of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ and the eventual resurrection of all believers. God is the one who can give real life. No one else can. Everything else is just a counterfeit of death. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. Notice there's only one condition, and that is belief. It is not committing yourself to Jesus. It's not uh, somehow inviting Jesus into your life or all this other fuzzy terminology that people use today. It is very clear, very simple. Just believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. But Jesus came not only to give eternal life, which is what we get when we trust in him, but he gave to, came to give real life or what he calls the abundant life. In John 10.10, 10, Jesus said, The thief uh, does not come except to steal and to kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life, that is, eternal life, and that they may have it more abundantly. Now, every person who trusts in Jesus Christ gets eternal life that can never be taken away from them. At the instant you trust in Christ, you have eternal life and an eternal destiny in heaven. But that doesn't mean that you're going to have the riches of the spiritual life that God has promised for you in this life. Because every day we have to make another decision, or many decisions. Every day you have to decide to choose, as Moses said, between death and between life. Are you going to choose the path of life and make the word of God and your relationship to God the highest priority in your life? Or are you going to continue to compromise with the world system, continue to think that somehow uh, the worldly philosophies, the worldly ideas offer some measure of life and continue to waffle between two options or in some cases just living completely within the world system and not being willing to uh, turn to God completely and trust him for real life. So there are four things that we are reminded of when we talk about restoration. First of all, restoration reminds us that as human beings, we lost something when Adam sinned. When Adam sinned at the fall, we lost a component of our immaterial nature, which we refer to as the human spirit. We lost that element of our uh, of our immaterial makeup that allows our soul to have a relationship with God, and which is the which with without which we will eventually have experience the second death, eternal condemnation. So restoration reminds us that we lost something in Adam and that there must be a restoration of that in order to have life. And that is what happens at regeneration. When we trust in Jesus Christ, we are born again spiritually. We are given new life in Christ, and we're given a new human spirit, a new capacity for our soul to have a relationship with God. Second thing restoration reminds us of is that God promised Israel that if they disobeyed him, he would remove them from the land and that he would scatter them throughout all of the nations of the earth, but that there would come a time 
when he would restore them from all the nations in the earth and he would uh, put them back in the land that he had promised them and he would then give them all of the blessings that he had promised in the covenants. So that focuses our attention on a future restoration, a restoration that will occur at the second coming of Christ. Another aspect of this is that we are reminded that we live in a fallen world. We live in a world that groans under the curse and condemnation of sin and a world, a creation that looks forward to the time when the sons of God will be made manifest, which is a reference to the second coming, and once again the curse will be rolled back on creation. So restoration uh, points us also to the future when Christ will return and restore all things. And then fourth, restoration also relates to us personally and experientially in our Christian life because we know that there are times when we sin, there are times when we fail and fail miserably, and there are times when we just sort of wallow in that failure and we want to stay there for a long time, but there is still the offer of restoration. Just as the prodigal son was restored to his relationship with his father, so we can be restored to our relationship with the Heavenly Father through the use of 1 John 1, 9 and confession of sin. There's never a time when we sin so much that we can't uh, use the grace of God to get back into fellowship and recover our relationship with him and go forward. So restoration is something that God always offers because God is continuously the God of grace and the God who offers life, and there is no life anywhere else with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to be reminded that each day we're challenged with probably dozens of opportunities to choose death or life, to choose blessing or cursing, as Moses stated in the law, that we have that opportunity to either uh, obey you, to either implement your word in our life, to apply doctrine in every area of our life, or to reject it and to try to live life on our own terms. For most here, we have recognized that the beginning point of real life is the cross, trusting Jesus Christ as our Savior, believing that he died on the cross as our substitute. There may be someone here, though, who's never made that decision, who is just now becoming aware of the fact that they were born spiritually dead and that they were born in a state of rebellion against you and that there must be a restoration and there must be regeneration. And that is simple. We are regenerated, Scripture says, simply by believing that Jesus died on the cross for our sins. He paid the price. All we have to do is accept it. And when we are born again, when we do have that new spiritual life and we're new creatures in Christ, then we have to nourish that new life. That comes only through taking in the Word of God, studying it. As Peter says, we are to desire the milk of the Word just as a newborn baby desires his mother's milk. We are to hunger for it. We're to thirst for it. It is to be our priority. That is the source of abundant life as we grow spiritually and we put into practice that which we learn from your word. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with what we study today, that we might uh, go forth from here more conscious of the fact that we must make these decisions. Are we going to choose life 
or are we going to choose death? We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.